0: Hi everyone and welcome to the Genomics Lab podcast, the podcast about current research in the field of genomics.
1: We are your hosts, Eleanor Watson and Olivia Grant, two PhD students in the genomics group at the University of Essex.
0: Join us as we speak to researchers in the field about their current research and their journey into genomics. Welcome to the first episode of the Genomics Lab. We're so excited to be filming our first episode. So my name is Olivia Grant. I'm a second year PhD candidate at the University of Essex and I study uh, the effects of air pollution on our epigenome. And I'm
1: with my co-host, Ellie. Hello. (laughs) Hi, I'm Ellie Watson. I'm a second year PhD student also at the University of Essex. And I am looking at um, human fertility research and how the shape of um, human sperm can influence fertility.
0: Yeah, so hopefully soon me and Ellie will do a little episode about our research. She's used to being quizzed by me on her research. (laughs) (laughs) So we're really excited um, to be introducing our first guest. Jess, how do you feel to be our first guest? I'm very excited and honoured to be your first guest. <laughs> <laughs> so um, Jess is um, a just gone into your third year, is that correct?
2: Yep, I'm in my final-ish year uh, at Imperial College.
0: Ooh, the right up year, exciting year. <laughs> <laughs> so um, yeah, she's just gone into her third year. She is a neuroscience PhD candidate at Imperial College London and she researches the molecular mechanisms of axonal regeneration following spinal cord injury. So Jess do you want to start by just introducing yourself a little bit tell us a little bit about your research?
2: Yeah absolutely Um, so As uh, Liv and Ellie have said, uh, my name is Jess Chadwick, and I'm a final year PhD researcher at Imperial College London, and I'm a molecular neuroscientist. So I look at the um, differences between regenerative and non-regenerative regeneration after spinal cord injury. Um, Specifically, I'm looking at intermittent fasting. Um, So that is when you have uh, fasting days in between um, your normal food consumption and how that can uh, boost regeneration after injury.
1: Wow. Okay. So how did you kind of get into this research? At what point did you realize it was something that you wanted to do? Obviously, that's really, it's quite a specific um, topic, isn't it? I mean, because something a little bit different, like, is that something that you've always been interested in?
2: Uh, Yeah, so um, I think I knew I wanted to do research uh, actually during my um, undergraduate degree. So I did my um, bachelor's degree at Leeds University, uh, also in neuroscience, and I did a little summer project um, in Dr. Julie Aspen's lab, and she's a biochemist. And that was my first sort of introduction to the molecular world. And uh, that was on, you know, first introduced to what's a PCR and uh, what's chromatin and the rest of it. And um, that really excited me. And I wanted to combine it with neuroscience, which is my primary discipline. So, um, yeah. Then after I graduated from Leeds, um, I came here to Imperial to do my master's um, and I did an MRes. So it's a I don't have any taught components. It's just research. Um, So I did a series of rotations. And in my first rotation, um, I went to the lab that I'm actually in now um, with Professor Simone Giovanni. And he looks at uh, spinal cord regeneration in multiple different uh, areas. So we've got um, people working on metabolism, the immune system, and then uh, intermittent fasting. And that was really how I first was introduced. And uh, I thought it was really interesting. And I was like, yeah, okay, let's do a PhD.
0: <laughs> wow. That's really cool. So what made you decide to not do like to do a research master's over a taught master's?
2: Well, because my MRes was also in neuroscience, um, I didn't feel like I needed the introduction. Um, so I guess if I had decided to change disciplines, if I'd done like, a I don't know, uh, a master's in cancer, for example, or cancer biology, then I would have done a taught master's. Um, so I had that those um, teaching modules at the beginning to catch up but you know lots of the teaching modules for the neuroscience course were things I'd already done in my undergraduate so I felt confident that I just wanted as much experience in different research areas as possible so that's why I decided okay go for an MRes and then you can try out lots of different labs and see what you enjoy and then choose that.
1: Sure wow (laughs) So that's that's really exciting. So obviously, you've kind of told us a brief introduction to your um, PhD research and how you how you got interested in that. So um, are you mainly I know, obviously, you do a bit of bioinformatics, but you're also kind of predominantly wet lab, like what's kind of your what's your kind of routine during the week you know what yeah. what's your split of time <laughs> so
2: at the moment um i'd say i'm 90% wet lab 10% bioinformatics um but that's just uh, just because of the nature of the experiments that i've been doing at the moment um so i've done a lot of data generation in the first 2 years and um, now i'm about to um, finish up with some big RNA sequencing and attack sequencing experiments. Mm -hmm. So in the next few months, I foresee my uh, time split, if you like, reversing so that I'm 90 percent bioinformatics and 10 percent wet lab. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, it's just a case of what I've been doing at the moment.
0: So was that always the plan or was because I know obviously a lot of people with covid have sort of taken on some bioinformatics projects. I know Ellie in particular as well you've taken on a lot more bioinformatics. Yeah,
1: I was um, predominantly wet lab until covid hit and now have had to become predominantly or solely bioinformatics. <laughs>
2: oh gosh, yeah. Uh, it's I think it's happened for a lot of people for sure. Um Luckily, I was in the middle of doing a lot of in vivo experiments when the first lockdown hit. So um, the university said, if you've got ongoing animal experiments, we don't want you to waste those animals. So you can keep going and finish them and then go into lockdown. So um, I continued my wet lab. And then when, you know, we were in April, I was at home along with everyone else and uh, trying to learn to code. (laughs) Yeah. which I'm sure is shared pain for many uh, molecular biologists.
1: Yes, Um, (laughs) definitely.
2: Yeah, but actually I I enjoyed it a lot and I realized, okay, like I think I would actually do more of this. So I decided that when I came back into the lab to do my RNA sequencing attack seek experiments, that I would actually try to do all the pipeline analysis and, um, Uh, coding myself so hopefully we'll see how it
1: goes I'll let you know (laughs) (laughs) amazing so obviously uh you're looking at sort of regeneration of uh spinal cord neurons Mm -hmm. after following injury so is there kind of obviously you're touching upon uh neurons that can regenerate and ones that can't is that kind of dependent on the different type of spinal cord injury that occurs? Um, What's kind of the distinction between that?
2: Yeah, excellent question. Um, So it's not necessarily um, the type of neuron, although that is actually a question that is outstanding in the field. And people are investigating that the different regenerative abilities of different types of neuron. Um, But. More realistically, it's actually the the location. So um, the central nervous system, which is your brain and spinal cord, um, is regeneration incompetent. So if you damage those nerves, then they stay damaged. Uh, Whereas if uh, you damage your peripheral nervous system, so literally all of the other nerves that innervate the rest of your body, your arms, your legs, stomach, muscles, everything, um, that has um, some regenerative capacity. Um, It's it's not fantastic. So once they're injured, trying to get them to re-innovate the same target is very difficult but um, the biological or the biology actually behind uh, the axon has capacity to regrow and start to um, heal itself. So what we're doing in our lab is to study a lot of the um, mechanisms and cascades that happen in the peripheral system after injury, try and identify some key molecular targets and then target this in the central system so that we can boost the regeneration after spinal cord injury. So um, yeah, uh, there are many groups who are working on this. Um, Mine in particular is um, the sensory nervous system. So we look at the dorsal root ganglia. So these are um, a ganglia is basically a little pocket of um, neuronal cell bodies, and then the axons, which are the long part of the the neuron, um, that goes into the, the spinal cord. Um, so the ganglia itself are where all of the genetic changes, uh, are happening within the nucleus. So we're looking at these neurons and the gene expression changes that occur after a peripheral injury. And then we can compare that to a central injury and, um, yeah, the, the differences are really stark and it's actually really interesting, um, epigenetically
1: to have a look. Wow. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that is really interesting. So has there been sort of any, um, research into the epigenetic side of it so far? And if so, what, what do we know about it currently? Yeah,
2: absolutely. So um, it's a very new field. We're still, you know, scratching the surface, really. Um, I mean, as with anything in current research.
0: Um, so yeah, our... And with um, um, most things in epigenetics as well. It's, not, you,
1: it's not too much of
0: a new field, but I feel like it's definitely something that a lot of people are starting to jump on and a lot of there's a lot more research going on in epigenetics now than there was perhaps 10 years ago
2: yeah absolutely I mean it is still a new field really like other than we found what DNA is and then we found what epigenetics is that's what we've done we've still got everything (laughs) else to do so yeah um, yeah, it has huge huge potential massive potential Um, uh, yeah so um, our lab um, we've looked at the 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 changes effectively um, that happen epigenetically um, after a central injury um, versus after a peripheral injury. And um, lots of um, histone modification changes that affect the chromatin conformation actually happen. So, after a peripheral injury, the uh, DNA, if you like, is in a more receptive state. So, um, there's a euchromatic conformation as opposed to a heterochromatic. So uh, euchromatin is the open version of um, chromatin, that means uh, the DNA is more loosely wrapped around your histone protein. So because it's looser, and there are more gaps between your histone proteins, that means transcription factors and other binding proteins can access that DNA and modify the genes to either switch them off or turn them on or whatever they want to do. Whereas heterochromatin is when the DNA is wrapped really tightly around the histone proteins, and it kind of acts as a block or protector. So those genes can't really be changed or accessed. And another term for this is gene silencing. So um, after central injury, there's a lot of heterochromatin and there are those essential genes that are involved in regeneration are silenced. Whereas after peripheral injury, um, there are more histone modifications um, that enable that euchromatic conformation and therefore the regeneration associated genes are enabled to be switched on and then you get the healing process starts within the neuron itself.
1: Okay, wow. So um, is that something that you uh, hope could be um, taken from the peripheral nervous system and Uh, there might be some sort of potential treatments to enable the central nervous system to react in the same way.
2: Yeah, we are working on it. (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) So (laughs) um, yeah, that's the plan. Um, So once we found that there is in fact, in fact, a difference, um, then almost the more complicated task is finding the transcription factors which um, bind and either change the Uh, Confirmation to euchromatic, heterochromatic, etc., so that we can actually enable this to happen. Um, Obviously, in addition, like this is just one layer of regeneration. Ultimately, the neuron is not um, just—it's the cell body and the nucleus. It's within context to the rest of the body as well. So, the environment surrounding the neuron, the inflammatory reaction um, with the immune system, along with like. Debris clearance from the injury site. There's so much actually within the environment of the neuron, as well as the internal intrinsic mechanisms, that finding the right combination to get a really robust response is. It's going to take a long time, (laughs) but yeah, that's the goal.
0: So you mentioned um, obviously there's a difference between um, central nervous system and peripheral nervous systems in terms of their response to spinal cord injuries. Yeah. Um, Apologies if you've already touched on this, but so do we know exactly what causes those differences?
2: So again, that is one of the main questions um, outstanding in the field. Um, we're still going through several different options. Um, at the moment, we know predominantly more about the environment. So the what we call the extrinsic um, properties of the neuron as opposed to the intrinsic. So we know that there is, pro-regenerative transcription program that activates after a peripheral injury and that doesn't happen after a central injury we don't know why Um, and we know that in a peripheral injury Um, lots of the environment surrounding the neuron enables it to heal and regenerate. So um, the immune system activates, sends in all your macrophages, which um, remove, they're like little Pac-Man, they remove all the debris and the um, dirt that's in the injury site. Then the uh, axon itself can form a retraction bulb and actually start to then form a growth cone and push through to actually then create the the rest of the neuron, the axon again, and again this doesn't happen after a central injury for multitude of reasons. There are some proteins that inhibit this. Um, the immune system stays reactive for a really long time, so instead of helping to clear out all of the rubbish, it just inhibits it, and then a, a glial scar actually forms. So. Earlier, um, are the astrocytes within the nervous system? They create this little scar, um, and it's supposed to be part of a healing mechanism, but actually, it prevents the axons from growing through the scar to the other side. Um, so then, you don't get any target reinnervation to the correct place anymore. So then, yeah, there's lots of um, elements that are still being understood, and this is why even though spinal cord injury is Um, I'd say like a new but also established field at the same time we've been working on this for a long time but still really struggling to uh, get any kind of clinical treatment and this is why
1: so just thinking about it in a slightly more clinical uh term Mm. because that that interests me a lot um kind of what is the impact on um you know on patients what what is this going to um what benefit is it going to bring about you know spinal cord injuries how many people roughly does it affect um you know how many how many people have really kind of long-term negative impacts on their on their health um
2: sure um so i'd say in the uk there's approximately uh, around fifty thousand people suffering currently with a spinal cord injury um and it can be for a, a multitude of reasons like you could have a sporting accident or you're in a car accident like the dramatic reasons or if you're old and you fall down like there can be simple causes for that too um depending on the location of your injury um you get different severity levels because it will impact different systems so if you imagine spinal cord from uh just under the base of your brain all the way down to your um coccyx which is just above um your bum then uh if you have an injury um, at the neck, for example, in your cervical region, um, then everything below the injury will be affected. So that includes the innovation to your heart, that includes innovation to your, your gut, your legs, your arms, everything. Um, so it's not just our spinal cord injury equals they can't walk again. It's potentially um, they can't go to the toilet because they don't have bladder innovation. Um, there's sexual dysfunction, again, which for people's mental health, if you think about long-term effects of I can never have sex with my partner, there are huge implications which um, go far beyond walking. And if you talk to patients, the number one thing that they actually want is independence. And usually being in a wheelchair is not the worst thing in the world, and it's the sensory system. Those effects are the, are the most psychologically harmful because they are so limiting um yeah so obviously any kind of clinical therapy would be yeah hugely life-changing
0: well it's really interesting um I guess this is why we wanted to make the podcast I guess is just to like talk about all of this really interesting research that's going on and it just goes to show like how important and what a big impact your research and the research that's going on in your lab will have Um, so what are the current, are there any current treatments or, or interventions? Is there anything at the moment that we can do to help these people? Mm,
2: So, um, in terms of actually, um, stimulating the biology, so you get, um, functional recovery through genuine tissue healing and repair, no. Um, and that's what we're working on. Other things like drug treatments to reduce inflammation after the injury so that you don't get such a a mess at the injury site, basically, Um, that's a thing. Um, But really the the ultimate answer is no. Um, That's why it's such a a big deal. Like if you have a spinal cord injury, this is it. There's no way to really try and help um, ultimately from a biology perspective. Um, There's some cool new research coming in actually from bioengineering um, who are making um, electrical implants which span the gap between um, the top of the spinal cord and then the bottom half after the injury site. So you can insert like, um, electrode is the wrong word but I don't know what you actually call this. I think it's like a chip and um, they're connected with little wires and it takes the electrical signal from the top of the cord and skips the injury site to the bottom of the cord, And they're using this to try and facilitate um, movement again after paralysis. Uh, and it's working, like you have these guys in huge bionic suits and um, they're, they're really trying their best. Um, so I think, you know, maybe AI and bioengineering will beat us to it, but um, obviously the ultimate the ultimate goal would be to actually have your body repair itself so that you get full functioning back um, without the need for an implant. But, yeah, we're working on it. Um, there are some cool things um, happening, um, but it will take a while.
1: Wow. Okay, so obviously you, um, you're you mainly looking at mice in your lab. Is that correct? Yep, I am definitely a small animal in vivo scientist, yeah. Okay, so um, I actually am in the same position obviously it's a lot easier to work with mice than humans um you know there's so many advantages um but what is there any sort of um i guess disadvantages to working with mice you know what are the 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 main differences the main limitations to working with mice when obviously the ultimate goal is to help humans so i'd say for our field in particular um
2: mice are really or animal research, um, is the best option that we have because you can't really, um, start giving people spinal cord injuries to test your particular drug, <laughs> um, or likely as well, um, taking experimental science straight into patients who are already sure. injured. Sure. Um, so, uh, we are, there are clinical trials, um, within humans that are trying, uh, to, to get something off of the ground, but, mice really enables that flexibility yep. the only drawback really is um it is a small animal model system and it is not the same complexity that a human being obviously is so one of the real limitations within our field is lots of our understanding comes from either developmental studies um, understanding how neurons grow develop which is very similar in, se- in several ways to regeneration and also then animal studies and this is just different to the the human system it's not that um, the mouse system has no value because it does it's a it's still a full entire homeostatic complex being which yes. you cannot replicate at a cellular level. There's still so much about the whole system biology that we don't understand that trying to invent other options like um, cell culture, um, I'm talking and a- alone by the way, um, yes. obviously cell culture in combination with other experiments is very valuable. But in terms of um as the primary research mechanism, just looking at either Cell culture or organ on a chip style scenarios, you're missing so many other things which you don't even know exist. So sure. you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So this is um, this is why we use we use the best um, uh, that that is available to us, and the mouse is pretty good.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like with a lot of research, I guess, isn't it? It's that, you yeah. know The best tools that you've got available to you.
2: Yeah. Although every researcher that works uh in molecular biology will acknowledge that it's not perfect it it never is um but that's why we keep building incrementally our knowledge within that field and then eventually we find something good that works and we can take it to clinical trials yeah
0: yeah absolutely um so i just want to bring it back to um epigenetics sure um, as usual (laughs) Cause that's your field because <laughs> yeah you know I love epigenetics so, so um, I'm interested in <laughs> you mentioned um that you were interested in looking at histone modifications, so I I take it that's sort of the aspect of epigenetics field that you're going to be looking at are there any particular histone modifications that we're aware of at the moment like what particular histone modifications are you interested in or are you mm. looking at as many of them as possible how are you sort of gonna look into that?
2: Um, yeah, definitely as many as possible. Um, I mean, from our data that we've already collected, the classical activation markers like H3K27, um, acetylation, h 3 k 4 all of the, I'd say the obvious ones basically are included. Um, so the way that we uh, look at that is first we, we do RNA sequencing. So that's when you take, for, for us, we take the, the DRGs, which are, um, contain the neuron cell bodies. And we then extract RNA, take this to sequencing, and then we can look at the gene expression changes. Once we've found, okay, these are a few key genes or key markers, um, we then use this in combination with attack sequencing, which is looking at um, regions of open chromatin. And then we can start to match up, okay, These are the types of genes involved. These are the types of open chromatin regions. And then we would do follow-up experiments with chip sequencing. So chromatin immunoprecipitation actually enables you to look at um, different markers of your choice um, within your sample.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, So I'm also interested, are there any current work sort of looking into um, DNA methylation, or is that something that you're planning on doing? Because I know you mentioned, obviously, about transcription factors and we know that DNA methylation and transcription factors sort of can um, have Mm. this epigenetic crosstalk. So um, is that something that people have already looked into or you're hoping or could it be some future research maybe for you?
2: Um, For me, probably not. Our lab hasn't done DNA methylation before, um, but we are trying. So one of the new cool projects in the lab is to do single cell sequencing. And I'm sure Everyone is doing single cell sequencing. Um, but uh, yeah, we're doing single yep, cell definitely.
1: sequencing.
2: <laughs> Everyone is doing this. Um, but it's good. It's good. We need to understand at the single level, particularly for different neuronal types. Um, and uh, we're hoping to do that in combination with DNA methylation to l- start to look at really within our lab for the first time, the DNA DNA methylation signatures. Um, I'm sure people have looked at DNA methylation in regeneration um, elsewhere, though I confess that I am histone related and therefore have not looked at it.
0: (laughs) It's unusual that you speak to someone who's um, researching epigenetics who sort of doesn't go straight for DNA methylation. Mm. I... I like speak to a lot of people who if you ask them if they're studying epigenetics the first thing they do is DNA methylation it's obviously the you know it was the first epigenetic mark that was sort of identified it's one that's like the most well-researched um I sound a bit sad here because obviously I study DNA (laughs) methylation
1: so I'm like I feel like a lot of people though that have very basic basic understanding of epigenetics uh I think kind of think that DNA methylation is it like that's the extent of epigenetics for a lot of people definitely
2: i've definitely come across that opinion yeah from from my perspective epigenetics includes histone modifications (laughs) but i know that actually this is controversial and it is still debated as to the official epigenetics and what it includes um because there are some purists out there that say it's only DNA methylation um and there are others that like me i'm happy to not be a purist i'm in theory, mm. only a neuroscientist. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I value histone modifications in epigenetics, yeah. <laughs> along with microRNAs. <laughs> yes, yeah, so let's go. I value it all. <laughs> uh,
1: so I guess, kind of, what what has been the most challenging part of your research?
2: Oh, so that's an excellent question. Um, so, like with any research there's the technical difficulty of oh, I don't know this technique I have to learn it from scratch then you learn it and it doesn't work and you're like great now I have to optimize it so everyone's done that and it's I wouldn't say it's like a, a difficulty it's, it's a way of life if you're a research scientist um and especially in biology 90% of the time it doesn't work and then you get that one 10% that you're like yes um so for me I think it would probably be um actually actually being okay with not knowing something so I think as a as a researcher particularly if you're a PhD you've clearly done well in school uh, you've done well at university you enjoy new knowledge otherwise you wouldn't be doing literally a PhD in learning that's that's what it is PhD um, and for me I, I found that um, being comfortable in a place where I didn't understand something immediately took me a while, um, and understanding that okay, if this if this if this experiment um, gives me negative data, as in my hypothesis is incorrect and this is not the correct answer, I need to go through a, a different avenue. That that was okay and actually a good thing um, because you've tried that idea. It wasn't right. So that means it's something else. It doesn't mean that your idea is rubbish. It just means that you have to go in a different direction. And I think when you're doing a PhD and you know that you only have three or four years if you're UK based, um, it's very time pressured. You're like, I can't make a mistake. I've got, you know, X number of experiments to run. I need to go. And you you almost like will the biology into please be nice to me today and just give me the answer that I have guessed or hypothesized um so uh yeah learning to be flexible i would say that's my greatest challenge is um and this is very personal just to me it's to say okay it's fine being in this space where it may not work Mm -hmm. because something else will work and everything will be fine in the end
0: absolutely yeah and i think um that's sort of like one of the biggest lessons you learn in the phd for me definitely is learning that you there is so much that you don't know. Every single day of my PhD, I realise that there's less and less and less that I know. And I think it's one of those things that even when you're, you know, at professor level, you're still going to feel like that. But I think that's, I think if you don't feel like that, that's when you sort of get comfortable and you don't, that's when you would sort of stop exploring and questioning things. So I think it's a really great, it's one of the greatest skills I think that you gain from the PhD, I personally think.
2: I, yeah, I agree to being yeah. okay in, in that state. For sure,
1: definitely, and I think uh, a skill that you you have to develop to go on to either the research world or the academic world, you know, I th- both both sides of the coin. You have to be okay with things going wrong, don't you?
2: Yeah, it makes you adaptable, a hundred percent. Even if you choose to stay in academia or not, um, it's one of the things. Um, that I think distinguishes PhD researchers, like ultimately in your final year, it's not a PhD in your discipline, it's a PhD in pure grit and determination. And you're like, I will finish this thing um, to the end. So yeah, for sure. It will serve you well in future.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And on on that track, what what sort of are your plans after the PhD? Do you plan to go into industry or academia? Do you wanna stay in neuroscience? what are you interested in epigenetics? What's sort of your next steps?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, so I would like to stay in research, partly because um, at the moment, I'd say uh, my project is m- like, you know, 80% neuroscience, a bit of 20-, 20% genomics. And I'd like to flip it so that I am mainly genomic focused with a bit of neuro. I can't get rid of the neuro forever. I love it too much. But I would definitely like to explore the field of neuroepigenetics and probably do a postdoc or two in that region before I feel happy that, you know, for my personal self-fulfillment, that this is something I really want to study and explore, um, because I enjoy it. It's just such an amazing field and it has such potential, um, particularly in neuroepigenetics. Um, so yeah, that's what I would think I would do after that. Don't ask me. (laughs) I'm still deciding. (laughs) um yeah uh, but so far the thing the only thing I can see myself doing is more research
1: oh cool. I think so me and Liv are obviously the first people to hold off our hands and say that um sometimes maybe we've got quite a, a naive view to um research outside our exact field I think we were both quite surprised that there was such um such an influence that epigenetics has in the field of neuroscience you know we yeah absolutely. struggled to maybe see the link to start with between neuroscience and genomics um didn't actually realize that it had quite such an impact which is like fascinating I guess
2: usually um but you could say that for every field because epigenetics is in everything and
1: yes me, it's such a it's such you a great you can tell I'm not an epigeneticist <laughs> so you can tell I am <laughs>
2: It is, it's in everything and um, it will influence everything as well. Just how, I mean, ultimately, it's how the environment impacts your biology. And regardless of where you are, what field, blah, blah, um, then yeah, you'll have multiple environmental influences and therefore multiple epigenetic influences. So ultimately, I'd say it's the most reliable science because you're guaranteed to find something, even if you've just drunk some coffee that will change your epigenetics for that few moments because it's your body responding to that external stimuli.
0: Yeah, no, that's so true. Um, I don't know as well if you've ever, um, so obviously just for the listeners, um, we both, all of us have um, Instagram accounts for sort of our academic career. So this is where we sort of got in touch with um, Jess and we all sort of post about our research and that's where we found her. And we was really interested in her research. So we reached out to her. Um, but I don't know if perhaps you, either of you, have looked at sort of like the epigenetics hashtag on Instagram. I don't
1: suppose you have. I haven't <laughs> explored. No. <laughs> no, I haven't. I mean, yeah, no, I'll hold hold my hands up and say that epigenetics fascinates me. Uh, I did it a little bit, touched on it at my undergrad, but I didn't ever really take it much further than that. So mm. I know I'm obviously sat here talking to two big epigenetics fans, <laughs> but I'm not quite as quite as with it as you two. I am literally scrolling oh, well, through the hashtag right now. <laughs>
0: um it's a bit painful to look through actually. Oh so really?
1: Why?
0: Yeah. Um I don't know I'm just I would really love to sort of um I know Ellie's probably like Let's shut up about epigenetics. <laughs> used to <laughs> no,
1: it. I'm I think used it's to it. um
0: she is used to it. Um no I think it's really good to um sort of discuss epigenetics and talk about these things because I feel like there is a lot of misconception about the field
2: oh my god Um, looking at this feed what yeah so if anyone's a lot of bougie health stuff um yeah no
0: that's rubbish yes so if um anyone's listening um don't obviously click off the podcast but go on instagram (laughs) and look at the epigenetics hashtag um because it is a little bit painful to sort of look through because you sort of see the misconception in the field and it's nice for us to talk about it and this is why I've started sort of started my epigenetic series on um my instagram page to just sort of like try and communicate a little bit more about what the field is and what it means because there are so many you've got to look at it to understand what I'm talking about so that, I mean Jess you're looking for it now
1: <laughs> as a uh, like a genomicsy person that's not quite as epigenetic space as you guys is uh this kind of the epigenetics uh misconceptions is that a lot of people a lot of maybe people that don't have uh much knowledge in this field thinking that oh, epigenetics absolutely. is um like uh the latest health kick the latest absolutely. trend you know is is that absolutely. kind of yeah yeah jumping so on great. that bandwagon yep, yeah so
0: there's just a lot of posts and they're saying you can change your genes today change your genes today by oh, doing right. this and doing that. it is totally all about the um the, the latest topic so, so, disclaimer. So no, disclaimer.
1: Why... disclaimer you can't <laughs> you cannot
0: <laughs> <laughs> but no I think um it is it's really nice to see like you know so many um academics and scientists on Instagram because it is a platform that's sort of like not really been um that I don't think a lot of scientists use and think about using I think it's a lot Everyone's like okay jump on Twitter you know Ellie when I don't know about you Jess but when we started our PhD we sort of had seminars that were like you need to be on Twitter be on
2: Twitter mm. yeah. I I mean I Twitter. I am a great yeah. advocate for social media communication so I'm both on Twitter and Instagram but I out of most people on my floor at Imperial I definitely am in the minority most people don't have. A social media account for their science, and I think it's one of the easiest and best ways to not only communicate cool science but to promote yourself as a researcher.
1: Absolutely, absolutely, especially at the moment. Um, I know, sorry everything always comes back to COVID at the moment doesn't it <laughs> I mean we're in 2021 now and it's still the same yeah. um but me and Liv were saying uh, I don't know if you're the same Jess you're obviously a year ahead of us but we feel like we've kind of really missed out a lot on um academic conferences
2: yeah and, me too uh,
1: my supervisor definitely says that the conference experience isn't actually about the conference itself so the the zoom conferences that go on uh just don't quite cut it because it's actually. If Ben's listening, he's going to be thinking, "Shut up, Ellie!" I yeah, say Ben's like, too. "Stop talking, Ellie!" <laughs> <laughs> because because Ben, his favourite part of the uh, conference is the the science that happens in the pub afterwards. Oh, it's um... that's the
2: best bit though. <laughs> that's where you get all your collaborations and your cool chat. All the
1: collaborations, exactly. And I think social media, especially at the moment. Um, is probably the next best thing that we've got to meeting other academics in the pub after the conference.
2: I totally agree. I totally agree. Yeah. um, I, one of the best things about actually poster presentations or conferences is, yeah, this is my science and yeah, it's cool. But really it's about knowing who everyone is in the community because ultimately your research field, you think it's massive, but it's really not. It's a very small world pocket and oh, I did my PhD here and then he was my postdoc mentor and then she was my supervisor for this. Everyone knows everyone else and you have to be in the club and you have to know who people are. So that's one of the best things is actually networking. Um, And I'd say that's why Twitter and Insta are fantastic for that because you, you have a global platform Now, you don't just like network with people that would have been at a conference. You can network with the world. You can talk to scientists in random places that you would never have been to before, like Israel or Australia, Um, people that are literally in different time zones and continents to you. This is why it's, in my opinion, fantastic. And if you are a young junior scientist, my recommendation would be get onto and create a professional um, scientific account or, you know, career account in either Twitter or Instagram to get yourself out there and meet cool people.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think this conversation that we're having is a great example of it. Yeah, because your neurogenomics, Ellie, you study fertility, I study, you know, um, the way that the environment of, um, affects our epigenome, the chances of us three sort of meeting at a conference are quite low, I would say. Mm-hmm. Low um, to us none, yeah. Otherwise, yeah, or otherwise us networking. So mm-hmm. it is a great example of how you can, you know, meet people in the other fields. And I think it's a really important thing to hearing about the other research in genomics instead of me just hearing about what's going on in epigenetics and Ellie hearing about what's going on in fertility and you know it's it is a really great way of just hearing about other cool things besides your little niche in genomics.
1: Sure and I also think that me and Liv are quite a good example of quite a good example of it just blowing our own trumpet here not at all. No we're just saying that um <laughs> we are studying very different things really when it comes down to it but there are actually quite a lot of overlaps that you know every now and then which if we weren't really good friends I don't think we would ever think of the other one but if I ever come across something slightly in her field or she comes across something in my field there has been like quite a few occasions hasn't there where we've been like hey look at this like this is kind of relevant to you like oh we could collab obviously we wouldn't we wouldn't actually come <laughs> well, know, we might do
0: <laughs> our supervisors would be like no girls no no no
1: <laughs> this isn't happening but I think just you know where you wouldn't necessarily meet at a normal conference doesn't necessarily mean that your subjects and disciplines don't overlap a little bit hugely and I think we could find similarities between our research and yours yes yeah, you know absolutely. if yeah if and it came down to it
2: importantly it gives you a creative edge as a scientist, if you know more about other disciplines and the context of how that biology works, mm, yeah. when you're coming across your own, if you've got a, if you come up against a problem and you think, oh my God, I, I don't know why this is, you know, the answer. Mm. The more different areas that you know, the more likely that you'll be able to think of a random solution to your problem because yes, you think, absolutely. oh, oh, it could yeah. be to do with this thing. So yeah. it, it makes you a very diverse Creative researcher, definitely so it's it's important to yes read within your field and a read around it, but multidisciplinary research and looking into different fields like biology, chemistry, physics, the merge for all of them is really. Mm. The and one. I
0: think even outside of you know the sciences, I am an interdisciplinary student, so I'm in the uh, life sciences department at Essex and I'm also um, a student in the Institute of Social and Economic Research so there's a huge sort of like biosocial aspect to my work so I follow a lot of social scientists on Instagram um, not so much on Twitter just I don't use it that much but I am I'm trying to um, <laughs> but it's really interesting because I can sort of have conversations with social scientists and obviously because I don't come from a social science background, that aspect of my work is probably the most difficult part. So it's really interesting to be able to have conversations with social scientists. And I think inter- interdisciplinary research is the future of research. Definitely. Um, I think that yeah. every single project or, um, you know, any bit of research has some form or should have some form of inter- interdisciplinary research to it, definitely. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Definitely. I mean, if you're trying to solve world problems, you need everything on board.
0: Very true. <laughs> <laughs> well, what are your hopes for like the future of your research or what are the hopes for your, your field, I guess?
2: Oh, uh, wow. The hopes for my field. Um, I hope we find something good and we do it quickly. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's we're good, working good
2: on it. aspiration. <laughs> um, I don't know actually. Um, I mean, I I love regeneration, but I probably won't um, stay in regeneration. I would like to move into neuro um, epigenetics. Um, and I mean, the hope for for that is huge, particularly when you're considering neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's or Parkinson's. Um, looking at the cell gene expression changes for individual cell types um, in a diseased uh, or pathological state versus healthy, it will be that next layer that we've unlocked um, in our understanding. And hopefully we can actually then start to get some some treatments which are based um, at the genomic level as well as the, the holistic cell level. Um, yeah, so that would be my hope. I'm just so excited for to know, to know what the future will be and, um, to investigate it, it's going to be great.
1: Amazing. How can people find out any more if they want to, if they've got any questions, how can they contact you? Obviously we've touched on Instagram and Twitter. Absolutely. Um, so, um, either, either of my social medias,
2: um, yep. It's, I think it's for Twitter, uh, Jess Chadwick, Jess underscore Chadwick. And then, um, on Insta, I am neurogenomics Jess um so yeah uh google me hit me up um or ultimately you can just email me um at imperial um and i'll, I'll respond yeah i'd love to answer any of your questions if you have some
1: amazing because so i'm sure there will be quite a lot of questions i mean you like this is fascinating stuff so i'm sure lots of people will be really intrigued thanks ladies <laughs> and then just to wrap
0: up um what would sort of be your number one piece of advice for anyone who's thinking about doing a PhD in either epigenetics or or neuroscience or anything like that?
2: Um, To ignore that small voice that says you can't do it and do it anyway because (laughs) ultimately you can and you'll probably crush it whilst you're doing
0: it so go for it. (laughs) Amazing, absolutely love that. Right. Well, thank you so much for speaking to us, Jess. It's been so interesting. Um, So yeah, like she said, Jess underscore Chadwick on Twitter, or I think it's neuro.genomics.jess, is that correct? That's the one. That's the one. Perfect. Or yeah, just contact her through Imperial. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me, girls. Um,
2: It's been lovely to chat.
1: Thank
0: thank you. you I'm
2: excited for the future episodes. I think it's going to be a really great podcast series. Oh,
1: thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much uh, again to Jess for coming on and speaking to us today. If you want to get in contact with her, you can check the episode description box for all of her um, contact details. And
0: on the next episode, we're going to be talking to Dr. Patrick Martin, who is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Copenhagen. So we will see you in the next episode. Thank you for joining us for this episode. Be sure to follow us on Twitter
1: at The Genomics Lab. That's got a capital G and a capital L. You can also find us on Instagram at PhD. And finally, be sure to subscribe to us on your favourite podcast platform. And we will see you all in the next episode. Thank you again for listening.